You won't settle for putting Susan B. Anthony on the new dollar. <laughs> I think you have no jurisdiction to uh, make that concession, uh, Mrs. Ginsburg. Welcome back to the final episode of the Ginsburg Tapes. I'm your host, Lauren Moxley. We've made it to TGT listeners. We've now listened to five of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's six oral arguments in the Supreme Court in the 1970s. And today is her final case, the final tape. When Ginsburg first stepped up to the podium in January of 1973, she told the court, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. In case by case, we have listened as Ruth Bader Ginsburg has convinced the conservative Burger Court to do just that, to dismantle a system of American law, assuming that women are confined to the home, as wives, as mothers, as caretakers, as life's passive participants. And she has built a new legal order that recognized that equality of rights for persons includes women. So let's travel back in time for one last case. In November of 1978, Ginsburg will try to convince the Supreme Court for the second time that equal rights under law include equal duties under law, including equal expectations of participation in our democratic system of government, in this case, through jury service. Ginsburg will stand before the all-male Supreme Court as an advocate for one final time to argue that Missouri's systematic exclusion of women from the duty to serve on juries violates the Constitution. I'll spend the first part of the episode focused on that case, Duren v. Missouri. But this isn't just any episode. This is a very special episode. It's the last episode. There are so many things that I want to talk to you all about. Now that you've listened to all of the tapes, and now that I've spent the better part of the last two years devoting my free time to this project, I'll spend some time talking through the legacy of these court cases and situating them in historical context and tracing them to where we are today. I also want to talk about the direct beneficiaries of this movement and those who did not reap the benefits at least directly, namely women of color, non-gender binary persons, and transgender persons. I want to make sense of something that I've been thinking about this whole project. Ginsburg's status as a cultural icon, as notorious RBG, as a rock star. Why that status exists and what it shows us about our current moment. But before I launch into that concluding monologue, we have one more tape to savor. Ginsburg will argue that women's equal citizenship requires not only equal rights, but also equal duties, including the equal duty to serve on juries. Mrs. Ginsburg, you may lower the lectern if you would like. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. My argument addresses the citizen's duty tied to a defendant's fair cross-section right and the complete absence of justification for exempting any woman. Though Jackson County jury panels uh, dominated by men, the Missouri Supreme Court said that the right affected is unimpaired. That reasoning in two key respects is topsy-turvy. First, the right central in this case, the right secured by the Sixth Amendment, is the criminal defendants here, Billy Duran's right 
to a fair chance for a jury genuinely representative of the community's complexion. And second, the vaunted woman's privilege viewed against history's backdrop simply reflects and perpetuates a certain way of thinking about women. Women traditionally were deemed lesser citizens. That wouldn't concern uh, Mr. Duran, would it? Mr. Duran has a right to a jury drawn from a panel reasonably representative of the community. Yes, and but he, wouldn't, he wouldn't be interested in the factor you mentioned, whether this is fair or unfair to the women that called for yes. jury service or not called. But that and was if, the traditional justification given by states, first for excluding women altogether, and then second, the second step was providing an exemption for any woman, the notion being that the women are not really needed, not really wanted for participation in the democratic processes of government. Viewed in that light, this is hardly a privilege. This is hardly a favor to the supposedly favored class. But as to the core right at stake, Judge Seiler, dissenting below, pointed out that a defendant's fair cross-section right can be meaningful only if it hinges on a correlative duty, the duty of the citizen to show up for jury service when summoned, a privilege to avoid service at whim, prominently advertised and readily available to any woman or any man or any other large, stable, distinctive population group debases a defendant's cross-section right. That right is real only when the obligation to serve is placed on citizens without automatic exemption based solely on their race, national origin, or sex. So Ginsburg's client in this case is a man named Billy Duran. Duran was convicted of first-degree murder and assault with intent to kill after he shot two people while attempting to rob a post office in Jackson County, Missouri. He was sentenced to two terms of life imprisonment by an all-male jury. All-male juries were not very uncommon in Missouri, where the state entitled women an exemption from jury service. And women had plenty of opportunities to opt out. They could opt out from the list of potential jurors, they could opt out when summoned, they could opt out at jury selection, or they could simply not show up and the state would consider them opted out. So as a result, although Durans County, Jackson County, Missouri, was 54% women, only 26% of summoned jurors were women, and about 15% of people who showed up for jury selection were women. Duran argued that he was denied his Sixth Amendment right to a jury comprised of a fair cross-section of the community, and his 14th Amendment right to due process under law. And in the clip that we just listened to, Ginsburg responded to a question from Chief Justice Berger in asserting that the exclusion of women from juries is an issue that Billy Duran, the criminal defendant, can assert. He has the right to an impartial jury of a fair representative cross-section of the community, which includes women. And she grounded that assertion in the Sixth Amendment, which provides that a criminal defendant has the right to an impartial jury of a fair representative cross-section of the community, which Ginsburg argues must include women. And we heard Ginsburg tie back Duren's right, the criminal defendant's right, to what she sees as the heart of this case. The vaunted women's privilege is what she called it. Why does Missouri excuse women from the obligation to serve in the first place? Ginsburg thus introduced a key theme in all of these cases. Say it with me. Benevolent sexism. 
Sure, women have a short-term benefit that they don't need to serve on juries if they don't want to. But what that short-term benefits really reflects is a fundamental prejudice about women's purpose in life as wife and mother, as a sex too fragile to endure the realities of jury duty, and thus as unneeded in the democratic process of the jury system. Now, all of this might sound very familiar to you. That's probably because back in March of last year, I put out an episode called Make Us Serve, which broke down Ginsburg's argument in the case Edwards v. Healy. In Edwards, Ginsburg represented a class of civil litigants challenging Louisiana law under which women had to opt in to jury service. Otherwise, they'd never be called upon to serve. That law resulted in the almost total exclusion of women from jury service within the state. Because Edwards was a civil case rather than a criminal one, Ginsburg couldn't rely on the Sixth Amendment that's issue here. She instead had to ground her case in due process and equal protection principles. But as you may remember, the state changed the law before the Supreme Court reached a decision, mooting Ginsburg's case. But as you may also remember, a criminal defendant challenged the same Louisiana jury selection scheme, which was argued on the same day as Edwards, not by Ginsburg. And I talked about that case a lot in the Edwards episode. The Supreme Court did reach a decision in Taylor. In an 8-1 to one decision over Justice Rehnquist's dissent, the Supreme Court held that women could not be excluded from the jury pool on the basis of having to opt in by registering for jury duty. Because, unlike Edwards, Taylor was a criminal case, the Supreme Court's decision was grounded in the Sixth Amendment and the fair cross-section requirement. In Justice Blackmun's notes from oral argument, which are on file at the Library of Congress, he wrote, this is the sequel to Taylor. And he's right. The jury selection scheme in Missouri is so similar to the jury selection scheme that the court already struck down in Taylor just a few years earlier. But the Missouri Supreme Court managed to uphold their jury selection scheme nonetheless. And the Missouri Supreme Court managed to make two distinctions between its jury selection scheme and Louisiana's jury selection scheme, and said that those differences were significant enough to distinguish this case from Taylor. First, the Missouri Supreme Court really focused on this differences between the opt-in and opt-out system. In Louisiana, if a woman wanted to serve on juries, she had to affirmatively register with the state. Whereas in Missouri, a woman would have to opt out, but obviously an opt-out system resulted in a higher rate of women's service on juries than an opt-in system. In Louisiana, women were only 10% of the master jury list and 1% of summoned jurors. And the Missouri Supreme Court thought that their relatively better numbers were a sufficient basis to distinguish Taylor. In the next clip, Chief Justice Berger will ask Ginsburg about the other types of people who are excused from the duty to serve, such as doctors, and he'll ask why those exclusions are okay, while this exclusion for women is not. I take it that very few doctors serve on juries in Missouri state courts, as is true in most states. Would you regard that as? Exemptions that apply on the basis of one's occupations reflect determinations by the state that certain occupations, for the good of the community, should be pursued uninterrupted, and it makes no difference whether a person is male, female, black, or white. It's the neutral, functional category that is excluded, doctor, lawyer, dentist, clergy, not well, Would that preclude a woman. state from saying that, uh, without getting into that old cliché about women's places in the home, 
uh, if the state said, uh, in effect, uh, mothers of uh, small children should belong at home, not serving on juries. Now, suppose it were narrowed to uh, housewives with uh, children under 16. There are uh, would several, you still have the same problem? There are several states that have exemptions <coughs> for persons primarily responsible for the care of young children. So that would be husbands or wives? It then. could be husband or wife, yes. Um, and you... Uh, but by using the term, uh, assuming that it will be the woman here or in a more general any woman excuse, uh, the state is providing an ineludible message that the male citizens are counted by government as the essential participants in the administration of justice, but the female citizens are not so counted their service is expendable. So the takeaway from that exchange is pretty straightforward. It's about functional exemptions versus sex-based exemptions. Chief Justice Berger is saying, if doctors can opt out because of their importance to the community, why can't housewives with children under 16 be exempted because of their importance to the community? And Ginsburg's answer is predictable. If the state wants to allow primary caretakers to opt out, that's fine but it simply cannot withstand constitutional scrutiny to assume and to codify that assumption into law that those caretakers are women, and therefore to carve out half of the population, all women, from the duty to serve. And it did sound like Chief Justice Berger is a touch bored by the cliché about women in the home, but simultaneously and immediately ask a question that misunderstands how that cliché is at the very foundation here by asking what's wrong with exempting housewives. Even though Chief Justice Berger didn't seem to grasp it, the fact that he referred to sex role stereotyping as a tired old cliché is kind of an achievement in and of itself. Remember that this concept of benevolent sexism was, after all, completely foreign to the Brethren prior to Ginsburg's campaign beginning with a grandmother brief in Reed vs. Reed. And now the Chief is recognizing it on site, and it's a fact that's so familiar of a concept to him that he thinks it's an old cliché and just doesn't want to talk about it. So in the next clip, we're going to hear more from this still new Justice Stevens, and he's going to reprise a theme from the last case, Califano v. Goldfarb, where he was so focused on this notion that there could be discrimination against men, but not against women. And here, he's going to build on that theme by pressing Ginsburg on a very difficult to answer in a satisfying way issue. He's going to say, okay, Ginsburg, so you've been standing before us all of these arguments and saying that women can do anything men can do. Women are just as good as men. But if women and men are totally equal, then why does it even matter, from the perspective of Billy Duran, if women serve on juries at all? Wouldn't have Billy Duran's case come out the exact same way? He's trying to point out an internal inconsistency in her argument that I don't really think holds up, but let's see how she does. Mrs. Ginsburg, may I ask you a question? If we look at it from the point of view of the defendant, and you take the view, as I think you do, that men and women are essentially fungible for purposes of jury service, how is the cross-section hurt if women are excluded? Uh, that was an issue that the court addressed in Taylor against Louisiana. Uh, yes, men and women are persons of equal dignity, and they should count equally before the law, but they are not the same. There are differences between them that most of us value highly. This court said twice, first in Ballard against the United States, and then in Taylor against Louisiana that there is a certain quality that will certainly be missing from that jury. What is the relevant difference between men and women for purposes of jury service from the point of view of the defendant? 
What is the relevant? Yes. Uh, is that indefinable something? Uh, that sounds kind of like a stereotype. <laughs> I think that we uh, perhaps all understand it when we see it and when we feel it, but it is not that easy to describe. Yes, there is a, there is a difference. So Justice Stevens thinks that Ginsburg is being inconsistent. He's saying, wait, I thought that you have been saying this whole time that men and women are the same. So why would adding women to a jury change the nature of the jury at all? Why would women's rights therefore be tied back to Billy Duren's right to a trial by an impartial jury? If I was answering that difficult question, I think I'd say something like the following. Just because men and women are the same under law, equal under law, does not mean that men and women have to be exactly the same or even that they necessarily are the same. I think this argument is at the heart of what I think and hope is a growing recognition of the importance of diversity in the decades that have passed since this tape was recorded. People of different races, sexes, socioeconomic statuses, etc. can bring a diversity of life experiences to the table. And groups of people, exemplified probably by groups of jury people, are made all the better when they can draw on a range of experiences. And from the perspective of the democratic process, no such identifiable group of people receiving heightened protections under the Constitution should be excluded from the duty to serve. And I don't think that argument is at all inconsistent with this notion that women and men are equal under law. I honestly don't know if I love the tactic of referring to the indefinable something that distinguishes men from women. I mean, you heard the audience laughing in that clip, Justice Stevens saying that it sounded like a stereotype to him. And you might remember uh, that Justice Rehnquist had a field day with this concept in his dissent in Taylor, where he wrote that the notion that some flavor is lost if one sex is excluded from the jury smacks more of mysticism than of law. But because it's so genuinely hard to articulate what the difference between the sexes are, and because generalizing to a whole group does often sound like a stereotype, I think it is better to just ground this answer in the fact that the lived experience of a median woman is different from the lived experience of a median man. And in order to have a fair cross-section of any community, women who comprise 50% or more of the population and are a protected class under the Constitution, see the beer case, need to be included. So in the next clip, Ginsburg will pivot and she's going to dismiss Missouri's argument that the fact that more women serve on juries as a result of its opt-out scheme is sufficient to distinguish this case from Taylor. In any event, Missouri's insistence that 9 to 15 percent representation of women is quite enough, although it is an exorbitant argument, is understandable for the state to this day has urged no justification whatever for exempting any woman. Missouri makes no claim that this women's excuse is even minimally rational though to overcome a defendant's Sixth Amendment right, as Taylor held, merely rational grounds would not suffice. The court said in Taylor that it is untenable to suggest it would be a special hardship for a woman to perform jury duty simply because of her sex. Post-Taylor, then, a woman's work, whether at home or on the job, and the administrative convenience of treating all women as expendable, these are not even arguable bases for diminishing the defendant's Sixth Amendment right by diluting the quality of community judgment a jury trial provides. Moreover, eliminating the exemption for any woman clouds no reasonable jury service exemption. Only two states, Missouri and Tennessee, 
today maintain a solely sex-based exemption. Other Missouri exemptions are tied to occupation, prior service, individual hardship, not to an unalterable identification each of us is marked with at birth, an identification bearing no necessary relationship to one's capacity or life situation, and therefore inherently unreasonable as a basis for jury duty avoidance. In sum, no sense at all nourishes Missouri's solely sex-based exemption implemented by Jackson County's prominent invitations to any woman to sign off and the jury commissioner's assumption from a woman's inaction that she doesn't want to serve. Have it, yes, surely not analysis or actual reflection, accounts for an excuse based simply on a woman's sex and not on what she does or is capable of doing. Man, her voice is so strong in that clip. We just heard Ginsburg argue that the 9 to 15% representation of women on jury pools is simply not sufficient under the Sixth Amendment. It doesn't distinguish this case from Taylor from recent Supreme Court precedent. And she argued quite effectively that Missouri is insisting on this argument because it had nothing else to say. It had put forward no other rationale for this exemption. Why? Because it's grounded in traditional notions about women's place in the home. And the state knows that that wouldn't withstand constitutional scrutiny. Ginsburg also argued that Taylor must control here, because in Taylor, the Supreme Court made clear that it's untenable to suggest that it would be a special hardship for women to perform jury duty. She also pointed out that Missouri and Tennessee stand alone in maintaining solely sex-based exemptions from the duty to serve. Building on the momentum from that clip, Ginsburg will now argue that this case is foreclosed by Taylor. She'll also field some questions from Justice Blackman, about the practical effects that would result from her winning this case, and about whether criminal defendants in Missouri will flood the courts with new Sixth Amendment claims. Finally, the court's 8-to-1 judgment in Taylor leaves no room for the Missouri argument that Billy Juren must show how he, in particular, might have been disadvantaged by violation of the fair cross-section requirement. Selection of a criminal trial jury from a representative cross-section the court held in Taylor, is an essential component of a defendant's Sixth Amendment right. Neither Missouri nor this court is at liberty to apply or dispense with the cross-section rule based on the view of prosecutor or of judge of the strength of the evidence against a defendant. Full respect for the cross-section command is required of the state because the constitutional safeguard is guaranteed to all, and it may be relied upon by every person, the most low and the least deserving, to the same extent as the most upright and virtuous. Professor Ginsburg, uh, somewhere in these briefs, the opposing briefs, is a suggestion that uh, if Mr. Duran prevails here, the Missouri jailhouse doors might be open. Do you have any comment? What is your response to that suggestion? I think it's certainly the case that this objection is available only to the defendants who have properly raised it below and pursued it on appeal. Moreover, it would be relevant only in the case of Jackson County. That questionnaire and that summons in the record that flags and signals repeatedly that women may take themselves off. Those are used only in Jackson County 
and no other county in Missouri. So I would say we are talking about one county only, about trials post this Court's decision in Taylor against Louisiana, and only in cases where the objection has been properly raised and pursued under Missouri law. Do you know what the follow-through in uh, the Louisiana case was? Yes. Billy, uh, Billy Joe Taylor was retried and reconvicted. But uh, uh, was that ruling specifically held uh, not retroactive? You, you held that it was not retroactive. And uh, so the result is that uh, the Louisiana jails were not open. And you think this would, would follow here in, also? In Taylor against Louisiana, uh, you overturn a fairly uh, a 1961 precedent against Florida. But you would think, uh, you would argue, uh, I suppose, that uh, Taylor, uh, uh, Taylor man mandated uh, invalidation of the Missouri law. Well, I certainly think so. And that this ought so. to go back at least to Taylor. At, at least, yes. To, uh, yes. Although that's not a necessary part of the case that's here today, yes. That was the message that New York got uh, and other states, all states except Missouri and Tennessee, got that message. <clears throat> so in remarkably clear and commanding words, Ginsburg just argued that Taylor governs this case. Taylor shows that a male defendant like Billy Duran has the right to raise a challenge to a jury selection scheme excluding women by showing how he in particular might have been disadvantaged by a violation of the fair cross-section requirement. In response to Justice Blackmun's concern that a ton of defendants will come forward and vacate their convictions because they have an all-male jury, Ginsburg assured him that there were two reasons not to worry. First, only women in Jackson County had this many opportunities to opt out. So the, it's unlikely that the numbers are going to be as bad in other parts of Missouri, and that, therefore that there will be as many claims as he's concerned about. She also argued that the court had already held that Taylor did not apply retroactively. So to the extent that other defendants could raise this argument, it would have to be in the short period of time following Taylor and preceding a court decision in this case, where the defendant properly raised such an argument. Next up, Ginsburg's final question of her career as an advocate for the Supreme Court. It will come from her future colleague, Justice Rehnquist. To conclude, the unconstitutionality of Missouri's excuse for any woman as it operates to distort Jackson County jury panels is plainly established. Any sensible reading of this record juxtaposed with this court's eight to one judgment in Taylor leads ineluctably to that conclusion. You won't settle for putting Susan B. Anthony on the new dollar. <laughs> <laughs> I think you have no jurisdiction to uh, make that concession, uh, Mrs. Ginsburg. Thank you. After oral argument, Ginsburg told a friend that she had considered saying to Justice Rehnquist, we won't settle for tokens. Ever cautious, always with her eye on the prize, the ultimate victory, she bit her tongue. But I decided to name this episode, We Won't Settle for Tokens, anyway because the justices already knew the answer to that question. So, on this crisp November morning of 1978, Ginsburg actually split her oral argument time with co-counsel, a very young public defender named Lee Nation, who was then 25 years old. 
Nation represented Duren in the trial court and the Missouri Supreme Court. And when the Supreme Court took the case, Nation asked Ginsburg to work alongside of him, having studied Frontiero while he was in law school. Before oral argument, Nation traveled to New York City to prepare, where he stayed in the Ginsburg's apartment, sleeping in one of her children's rooms. She apparently would say to him in the mornings while he was staying with her, Lee, I think you should go to the library and study today. But she also had a lot of questions for him about what his life was like as a public defender in the trial court in such a different type of legal world than the one that she was living in. Nation's argument had a lot of overlap with Ginsburg's, so I don't think we need to listen to it here. But if you're interested, you can always check out the OYA's website, which has the full tapes of all of these recordings and most Supreme Court oral arguments dating back to 1955. Missouri was represented by Nanette Lowry, Missouri's Assistant Attorney General. She's in her early 30s at the time of this argument, and she was working for then-Missouri Attorney General John Ashcroft, whose name is also on the brief. Nanette Lowry went on to have a very successful career, and President Clinton nominated her to serve as a federal judge in 1995, and she continues to serve as a senior judge on the U.S. District Court for the Eastern and Western Districts of Missouri today. Here's an interesting portion of her argument, where I think she smartly seizes on the weakness of that indefinable something answer that justices seem so skeptical of. This notion that if Ginsburg is right about women being equal, their presence on juries shouldn't make much of a difference. As I said before, I agree that what once were justifications for our exemption may be outmoded and archaic, and yet it seems to me that the basis of the petitioner's position is that Billy Duran somehow was deprived of a fair and impartial trial because the undefinable something that distinguishes men and women. I submit that is equally outmoded and archaic and not a basis for finding a violation of the defendant's Sixth Amendment. So in that clip, Lowry managed to do two things. First, she acknowledged in pretty Ginsbergian language the outmoded and archaic stereotypes at the foundation of women's exclusion from jury service. At the same time, she capitalized on the obvious appetite of some of the justices to see an inconsistency between Ginsburg's equality arguments and her assertions that women were not interchangeable with men for the purposes of jury duty. And she did this by seizing on the language from earlier in the day, from that indefinable something that Ginsburg said separates men and women. And she seemed to suggest that Ginsburg was perpetuating stereotypes in relying on an indescribable distinction between men and women. At the end of the day, Lowry's argument didn't end up swinging the court. After all, the court had struck down such a similar jury selection scheme about three years earlier in Taylor v. Louisiana. So in an 8-1 to decision written by Justice White, the Supreme Court held that Missouri's systematic exclusion of women violated the Constitution's fair cross-section requirement. The decision was written very narrowly, very specifically to Missouri's jury selection scheme. The court did acknowledge that a sex-neutral rule, exempting those members of the family responsible for the care of children, would be appropriate. Guess who wrote the dissent? You're right, it was Justice Rehnquist. Justice Rehnquist wrote a memo to the court about this dissent and another that he was attempting to write. Having been so badly outvoted at conference, the only purpose of my dissents can be, in the words of Charles Evan Hughes, an appeal to the brooding spirit of the law. And I have found it more than a little difficult to commune with that spirit during a two-week session of oral argument. 
Following the Supreme Court's decision, Billy Duren got a new trial. The case also ended Missouri's law allowing sex-based opt-outs from jury duty. As to whether this case applied retroactively, the court decided that Duren reaches all cases where juries were sworn after Taylor, in which the issue was raised in a timely fashion and rejected by the state courts. Ginsburg was happy with the win, but she lamented the narrowness of the decision. She said that the Supreme Court, in following its lead, the lower federal courts, would continue, as in Duren, to deal with each case in its narrow frame, to write an opinion for that case and that day alone. This decision came out on January 9, 1979. In June of the following year, Ruth Bader Ginsburg began serving as a judge on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. So here we are. We have now listened to and broken down and analyzed all of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's arguments in the Supreme Court as an advocate. If you've been with me since the beginning, you are now officially an expert on Ginsburg's effort to find a home for women in the Constitution. In the last episode, I talked a bit about the doctrinal legacy of Ginsburg's effort, of the middle tier of review that resulted from these cases, and the intertwined, still-in-progress fight for the Equal Rights Amendment. As we reflect on this final tape, I want to take another step back and think even more broadly about the legacy of Ginsburg's efforts. First, I want to explore who reaped the benefits from this partial victory of intermediate scrutiny, and who fell outside of its reach. Ginsburg's efforts in the courts swiftly eroded a particular category of law, subordinating women to men, laws codifying sex role stereotypes. As a matter of formal legal doctrine, Ginsburg largely succeeded in making the institution of marriage sex neutral. And to a remarkable and inspiring degree at the hand of this one person, a system of American law codifying traditional divisions of labor between men and women was struck down, and a constitutional infrastructure was set up to continue to further avoid the formal codification of these stereotypes in our laws. I spoke a bit in the last episode about the critical work of Serena Mayeri, who's a scholar and professor at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, and who's written extensively on the relationship between sex discrimination and race discrimination as a matter of legal doctrine. Mary wrote that following Ginsburg and the ACLU Women's Rights Project's successes in the courts, husbands and wives were now mostly fungible spouses. The government could no longer overtly penalize non-traditional divisions of family labor. Mary also noted that around the same time, feminists won the enactment of anti-discrimination laws to support women's economic independence for men. And through this project, I've really developed an appreciation for these critical gains in the courts, for just how important it was to strip these stereotypes out of American law. At the same time, I think it's important to recognize that not everyone benefited from this moment of constitutional change in the same way or to the same degree. These sex lines that Ginsburg had challenged in court reflected stereotypes about the expected roles of the sexes, to summarize as breadwinners and as homemakers. But here's the thing. That dichotomy largely only existed in white households. Women of color have always worked. To paraphrase Kathleen Sullivan, even if the pedestal on which white women were placed can become a cage, no one ever confused benevolent sexism with the overt racism so deeply embedded in our country's history. 
on the successes of Ginsburg's strategy in the courts and liberal breadwinnerism. Serena Mayeri wrote that neutralizing the benefits of marriage did little for the increasing numbers of women and men for whom marriage remained out of reach. For these Americans, combating discrimination in employment, broadening access to education and health care, strengthening the safety net, expanding the rights of non-marital children and their parents, and navigating the end of an era of prosperity undoubtedly took precedence. Mary also noted that African-American feminists from around this time period in the 1960s and 70s, including Polly Murray, Eleanor Holmes Norton, Patricia Roberts Harris, and Eileen Hernandez, positioned black women as role models for white women, and egalitarian black marriages as a model for white couples' emulation. Eleanor Holmes Norton told the New York Times in 1970, the black woman already has a rough equality which came into existence out of necessity and is now ingrained into the black lifestyle. That gives the black family very much a head start on egalitarian family life. Another issue that I've been dying to address is gender identity. These cases are all so gender binary and they do not reflect a concern about the constitutional protections available for transgender persons, non-gender conforming persons or intersex persons. Here's one such particularly jarring example, which is the clip from the oral argument in Edwards versus Healy. And sex, which is immutable and doesn't change, and that's why age classifications uh, should not properly be considered in the same light as classification based on a, a factor like race or sex or national origin, something that is not going to happen to everybody. You're, you're put in that status at birth and you can't get out of it. Well, with but, some few exceptions. With some very few exceptions. <laughs> read about in the papers sometimes. Yes. So as that clip makes abundantly clear, the status of transgender persons under law was certainly not on Ginsburg's mind or the minds of these justices at the time of the oral arguments that we've been focusing on in the 1970s. And this area of law is rapidly developing today. This term in the Supreme Court, the court is considering whether Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which prohibits discrimination because of sex, prohibits discrimination against transgender people based on their status as transgender or sex stereotyping. This case is called R.G. and G.R. Harris Funeral Homes, and it's definitely a case to watch. If you haven't heard it already, the Strict Scrutiny podcast, which covers current Supreme Court cases, has a helpful overview of this case from October 21st of last year. So Alex Chen is an old classmate of mine, and he just started an amazing gig as the founding director of the LGBTQ plus advocacy clinic at Harvard Law School. So I talked to Alex, and he said that the developments in this area of gender identity and the Constitution are changing so rapidly that some of the best resources to learn about it are published opinions. And Alex recommended four decisions in particular. One is the Ninth Circuit's decision in Karnofsky v. Trump from June 2019. That case concerned the constitutionality of the Trump administration's ban on military service by transgender individuals. As to the constitutional standard that applies, the court applied intermediate scrutiny. The court said that the government bore the burden of establishing that they reasonably determined that the policy significantly furthers the government's important interests. It also held that anti-trans policies must be justified by an exceedingly persuasive justification and one not hypothesized or invented post hoc in response to litigation. 
and you can see how that language has a direct line back to the 1970s in Ginsburg's effort and the invention of intermediate scrutiny as a tier of review. Alex's three other recommendations were Whitaker v. Kenosha School District, which is an opinion from the Seventh Circuit about the right of transgender persons to use the bathroom that corresponds with their gender identity. Another is Edmo v. Corizon, which is a Ninth Circuit opinion, focused on whether it's cruel and unusual punishment under the Eighth Amendment to deny gender confirmation surgery to a prisoner experiencing gender dysphoria. And the final one is this case called Arroyo v. Rossello, which is about Puerto Rico's ban on changing gender markers in birth certificates. And I thought that that was a particularly beautiful decision from Judge Carmen Consuelo Carrezo. She wrote, The right to identify our own existence lies at the heart of one's humanity, and so we must heed their voices. The woman that I am, the man that I am. I encourage you to go look at the opinion and read on. Having reflected on who reaped the benefits from Ginsburg's movement and who didn't, I think it's time for some final reflections before I wrap up this project for good. First, on Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and second, on the movement that she built. I'm constantly struck by Ginsburg's status as a cultural icon, as a rock star. I'm sure this is intensified for me since I live in Washington, D.C., but her image is literally everywhere. When I go out from a run, I'm constantly reminded that I need to get back to work on TGT because her image is literally posted on light poles all around Adams Morgan. I see notorious RBG t-shirts and tote bags everywhere. If I'm being honest, that intense interest was part of the inspiration for this podcast. If hundreds of people will show outside the Supreme Court to plank, then maybe there is some subset of that fan base who wants to learn more about her to learn more about what made Ruth Bader Ginsburg the notorious RBG, and along the way that we could learn about other topics, about sex equality, about constitutional law, about the Supreme Court. But as I've made this podcast, I've had some time to think, why is RBG, an introverted, private, 86-year-old grandmother, such a rock star? What is it about her, or what does it tell us about the moment that we're living in? I think that there are some immediate political reasons that people are rooting so hard for Ginsburg. Knock on wood, but she is likely towards the end of her career, and we want to celebrate her and everything that she's built. And while hashtag NotoriousRBG is a phenomenon that predates Trump, it has intensified during the Trump administration. By this spirit of resistance in the face of a remarkable deterioration of our country's values. When our president is a man who openly brags about assaulting women, and no one cares. When our president is a man who obviously values women for their appearance, chiefly. Who has fewer women in his cabinet than we have seen in decades. Who has banned military service by transgender individuals. Who has appointed a fleet of anti-LGBTQ judges and officials. And at whose direction human rights abuses are committed at our southern border. In this moment, in this time, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has become a rallying cry and a symbol of resistance. But I think there is more to it, obviously, than just a reaction to Trump. My thesis is that feminism has become a mainstream worldview in a way that was not true even a few years ago. And that mainstream feminism has given rise to a craving for a hero, a symbol of women's equality, And I think that Ginsburg is one of few women who can hold that mantle. I think the reason that she is it is because, unfortunately, 
very few women have been at the top of public life for many decades. And of those few, there are even fewer who made their name, made their mark, fighting for women's rights. And so she is uniquely positioned to serve as an outlet for frustration with the current political moment and this powerful collective hope and raised expectation that mainstream feminism has created. And so here we are, we've cast upon an octogenarian grandmother, this badass symbolism. Something that I often struggle with is the thin line between mainstream feminism, the notion that women's equality is a hard-earned banality, no longer a niche view, but instead a widespread worldview embraced with gusto so strongly that it's almost trite. And commercial feminism, the heavily branded, heavily Instagrammable, heavily commodifiable and monetizable manifestation of mainstream feminism. Commercial feminism to me feels like slacktivism, but mainstream feminism feels powerful. And so one of the major goals of this podcast was to harness the gargantuan stardom of Ginsburg and to situate that iconography in historical and cultural context. So that when we proudly wear our notorious RBG shirts, drink out of our notorious RBG mugs, it is not slacktivism of commercial feminism, but rather a genuine outlet for a collective craving of equality, a symbol of solidarity. We know a little more about what that symbol means and where it comes from, what it achieved and what it did not achieve, how it succeeded, and how it didn't. And now we're experts in Ginsburg's effort to locate women in the Constitution, in the doctrinal house that she and the ACLU Women's Rights Project built, case by case and brick by brick. As Jill Lepore explains so well in her excellent book, These Truths, second wave feminism of the 60s and 70s was really three movements. The group that we've been studying, liberal feminists, following the blueprint set out by Polly Murray and led by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, this group of institutionalists made striking gains. And we know that as a result of their efforts, courts recognize that the words persons in the Constitution includes women. As Jill Lepore explained in her book, this group of liberal feminists drew inspiration from the women's suffrage movement, abolition, and pre-Black Power civil rights movements. And the goal of this group of liberal feminist institutionalists was to pass laws, win constitutional court cases, and get women elected to office. And from 1970 to 1975, the number of women in Congress doubled. But there was another strain of feminism that I haven't explored on this podcast, to which we owe much credit, radical feminism. This group was out there fighting for a more radical vision of equality, as Lepore puts it in her book, for liberation from the bondage of womanhood, the shackles of femininity. And this group was influenced by the less institutionalist, more revolutionary tactics of black power. And unlike liberal feminists, Betty Friedan famously wanted to avoid ties between women's rights and gay rights, this group maintained close ties to the gay rights movement. Gay is good was something they would often say. And there was a third group, conservative anti-feminism, led by, say it with me, Phyllis Schlafly, Jerry Falwell, and Stop ERA. This group was a reaction to both radical and liberal feminism, to the initial popularity of the Equal Rights Amendment, and to the gains of liberal feminists in the courts. 
to the ends of bans on contraception, of abortion, and of Roe, who spread messages of fear, fear of change, fear of taking away so-called privileges, fear of putting our daughters on the front lines. And a remarkably successful strategic decision still reverberating in American society today, Schlafly and Stop ERA managed to tie the Equal Rights Amendment to abortion, clearing the path for Reagan-era family values, a genius political move that solidified a base. Anti-ERA activists would rally around symbols of the housewife, campaigning outside state legislatures with the slogans, Preserve us from a congressional jam! Vote against the ERA sham! And I am for mom and apple pie. I don't think that you can declare a clear victor between these three camps between Ginsburg and the liberal feminists' impressive gains in the courts and in Congress, the vital, thought-shaping work of radical feminists, and the ultimate defeat of the ERA and of strict scrutiny, in no small part due to the work of the anti-ERA activists, led by Phyllis Schlafly. And the reasons that Schlafly articulated for opposing the ERA are still reverberating as that amendment is back in the conversation today. Ultimately, I think that we are still at the beginning of this play. Though incomplete, the pace of change in law in the 1970s was so swift, so satisfying in comparison to many of the lingering challenges to sex equality that we continue to face today. To equal pay, to pregnancy discrimination, to a permanent and meaningful right to reproductive justice and abortion. And while formal legal progress has been made, social changes feel slow. Women still do the vast majority of household and family duties. The political state of our nation feels like it's in a lurch backwards. While politics ebbs and flows, and while we are still far from true equality, many of the core institutions on which our equality is built are not going away. And I think that these core institutions are so strong in no small part because of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Her incremental strategy led the justices along, case by case, building an equality infrastructure that quite literally box in the court from perpetuating inequality. You've heard it on the podcast in the tapes of Ginsburg's final cases, when the all-male bench of the Supreme Court didn't want to rule for Ginsburg in cases with a particularly high price tag, but they felt bound by their own precedent, precedent that Ginsburg built brick by brick. I think we need both. We need radical feminists working from the outside for a more inclusive and encompassing view of sex equality. And for institutional change, I think we also need institutionalists. We also need Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the ACLU Women's Rights Project. Because of these institutions, we are not going to lose the right to vote. A system of American law codifying sex role stereotypes has been struck down. And if more crop up, we have decades of constitutional precedent giving us the opportunity to strike them back down. There will be more women in Congress, there will be more women in the judiciary, and there will be a woman in the White House. I think these tapes show just how far we've come in a relatively short period of time, over the course of one person's adulthood. Some listeners reached out about the laws at issues in these cases. 
they couldn't believe that it was in the 1970s that there was a law in Idaho that men must be preferred to women in the administration of estates. But some of you listeners were alive then. To you, none of this is a surprise. You lived this. And while I think we can agree that we've come a long way, I think we also know just how far there is to go. To a moment when there is true parity in our government, when there is true parity in our homes, and there is true parity in our relationships. And I, for one, am tired of waiting. I have learned so much from this project about constitutional law, about how it evolves over time, about history, about this country in the 1970s, about feminism, about sex equality, about where we came from, which I hope illuminates where we are going. But I'm still learning. If you want to continue to learn with me, here are three podcasts to check out. Strict Scrutiny is a terrific podcast about the current Supreme Court, hosted by Leah Littman, Melissa Murray, Kate Shaw, and Jamie Santos. And I'm sure anyone who's made it this far on my podcast already knows about Strict Scrutiny, but definitely check it out if you haven't already. I also love the Amicus podcast, which is hosted by Dahlia Litwick, and which I have found to be particularly enlightening in covering the Trump administration and the court. And finally, I'd like to recommend Ordinary Equality, which goes over a lot of adjacent topics from this podcast, including an interview with Phyllis Schlafly's daughter, a discussion of intersectionality and the ERA, and much more by Kate Kelly. I'm going to continue my project of trying to understand the Constitution, about what it means and where it comes from. And I'll be tweeting about that and other subjects, like my main job, which focuses on tech and privacy issues, on Twitter, at Lauren Moxley. This project has given me an outlet for my frustrations with the current moment, with the affront to progress that is embodied by Trump. I'll say that Ginsburg taught me so much. These tapes taught me so much. And you all, through your comments and emails and DMs, have taught me so much. If you want to take on a side project like this as a side hustle from a more than full-time job in big law, you better love it. And I did. Thank you for listening. <laughs>